All right, howdy JFC, on your seat, right off the bat. See if you can find this card right there. It says on one side, um, uh, not my will, what I do. Other side says, but your will, what God can do. Grab that, hold that up. Let me make sure everybody's got one. Okay, you will not need it right this second, but you will need it at the end of the service. There is something significant that we felt like God put in our heart to help people be able to connect uh, to this message. And I would just say to you, if we're able to communicate, and I'll just personalize it, if I'm able to communicate what I feel like the Lord wants to do in this message, it may be the most significant Easter message we've ever had here uh, at JFC. So I'm really excited about this. Make sure, have that close by. All of our campuses, look down right now, should be on your chair, Castle Rock, Highlands Ranch, uh, wherever you are listening to this, you should be able to have that card with you. It'll be a significant event. The other thing that I would throw out to you is uh, we, um, uh, this week, went to see The Thorn. Anybody in here familiar with that play at all? Yeah, a few of you are. It is the Easter story. Um, and it has gone, we went last year for the first time, but it's been around for several years, and it just keeps increasing in its velocity and what God is doing with it. Now it has gone nationwide. There's a couple of different uh, uh, actual theater uh, categories that it's, that, it's, uh, that it's fallen into. It's just doing tremendous, but it's going to be in Denver next weekend. And we went to the Springs to see it, so um, it's, it's too late now to catch that one, obviously. But if you want to see a great uh, show about the resurrection. It deals with um, really the creation of the world through the death of Christ and the resurrection, but it deals with the miracles of Jesus in a phenomenal way. And if you've got um, friends that are just, you're looking for a way to bridge the gap, maybe they won't even come to church, but you're looking for a way to bridge the gap, I'm just going to throw this out to you. We've gone to it twice, took a bunch of people with us last night uh, when we went to visit it. It is a tremendous experience. And I would encourage you, go see the thorn. It is really awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into this real quick. Our series um, is our Easter series. And what we decided to do was to look at three significant events surrounding the passion. So we're calling it the garden, the grave, and the glory. We just started it last week. We talked about the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, what it means, what God was trying to show us, what Jesus did during that time. Uh, this weekend, we're going to talk about the grave. How many are excited to hear that message? That's what I thought. I, I know. Title's a little bleak, obviously. But give me a chance to, to get into it and to show you something. And then next weekend, uh, we'll talk about the glory. And I think you will really get a, uh, a, a charge out of that. Um, I put on your transition point right here, the grave, three unique things that happened uh, at Jesus' death and their meaning. Three unique th- things that happened at his death and their meaning. So I'd like you, if you would, find that first one right there. And it just says darkness at 9 a.m. And I, I, for time's sake, want to jump in and go because at the end of this, for all of our services and at all campuses, I want to give time for God to do what, what he needs to do as we connect. So, so darkness at 9 a.m. is the first one. In Mark chapter 15, verse 33 and 34, uh, it's one of the gospel's accounts of what took place at the death of Jesus. So in Mark's accounting, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, probably, whether you're a believer or not, and even if this is, say, your first week in here, I bet you're familiar somewhat with the Easter story, and I bet at some point you have probably heard that saying, maybe not in the Aramaic that is written here, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, but probably heard it in the English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most scholars uh, agree that what was going on at this time, Jesus 
um, by virtue of God's plan, Jesus is manifest on the earth for one purpose primarily. Now, he listed several different things that he was here to do, but he listed one thing primarily that he was here to do. He was here in order to take all of the sins of mankind upon himself, and he was going to pay for all of those things with his death on the cross, and his resurrection is the proof that God justified him for giving our sins, and all who believe in that can be a part of God's plan. But most scholars agree that it was at this point while Christ was on the cross that the full weight of everything that he was doing is manifest at this point. And the Bible teaches that God is holy. I, this, is, this is deep theology, and I'm, I'm not going to do any justice in quickly skimming over it. But the Bible teaches that God is holy, and his perfect holiness cannot dwell with anything that is sinful or unholy. So it was at the point where Christ is, is manifest, taking on the sins of the world, that the Father turns his back on the Son, and the Son, for the first time ever in his life, feels the separation from the Father, and that's what he's crying out and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So most scholars agree that it's at this point where where the entire plan of God, as far as being the substitution for our sin and our death, it's at that point where Christ felt it, uh, where Christ noticed that the Father had withdrawn and that the Son uh, felt alone. I put in there darkness at 9 a.m. Now you'll read that first part. It says when the sixth hour had come, here's the problem. The sixth hour does not mean six o'clock. It, it is on a, uh, a Jewish calendar, and they had different uh, time um, uh, constraints and understandings than what we have. And so the literal translation is that darkness happened at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's when this is taking place and when it manifests. Now, what I wanted to look at today was um, three what I think are unique things that happened at the death of Jesus and their meaning. Why does the Bible put in there? Why does it take the time to tell us that there was darkness uh, at this point, when Jesus is, is feeling the full weight of his decision to follow through with the plan of God, why is it at this point that the Bible says there is darkness? Well, I would link this idea that where God is, here's, here's a really neat scripture. In the book of Revelation, the Bible says there will be no need for a son because the son himself will be the light of the universe. Amen. And I, I would just throw out a, a neat thought here that wherever God is, he is light. That darkness only exists in the absence of light. Darkness as a, as a fact of being actually is not really... Only with the absence of light is darkness. So I would just say to you, it was the thought with the Father himself withdrawing that darkness covered the earth, that it, that it fell at that time. And what I, what I find interesting, um, I, I thought to myself, what is it that Christ is going through here that the Bible takes the time to, to expose the, the thought of, of all the things it could teach during the death of Christ and what he's going through. Why expose this, this very, um, I mean, it, it is to the point that at 9 o'clock there was great darkness. What was it that Jesus was going through? And I, I started looking at this and thinking about this, and I, I, I just wrote down a, a couple of scriptures that came to me. These are, these are really cool scriptures talking about who Jesus is and what he did outside of the gospel's account. And so this is Hebrews 2.18. It says, Jesus himself suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says something almost uh, identical. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, and just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And here's what I thought was really significant about this darkness and why the Bible takes the time to get into this. I think that one of the things Christ experienced um, in this darkness, I, I, I think that Jesus went through everything that we have ever felt in our lives, and that's why he can relate to us so well. So that when we experience any darkness in our life, what the Bible wants us to do, rather than feeling alone, rather than feeling like we're fighting a battle by ourselves, rather than feeling like we're just in it and there's no one else who can even, who can even get it, the Bible says that Jesus has felt all of these things for this reason. So that we can go to him and obtain grace and mercy in our time of darkness. So let me throw out a few thoughts here. Here's what Jesus experienced in a 24-hour period. He experienced one of his best friends betraying him. Would you agree with me that some of the darkest times you could ever experience is the betrayal of a friend? I, I, this week, I, it is, this is just, I, I guess it goes with the territory. I've done this now 26 years. I've not seen it to not be true with other pastor friends that I have. But I would say one of, one of the most difficult things in pastoring is that time to time you lose friends. And you have friends that, that, that come and they're a part of what you're doing. And they, they, they love it and they get it. But it just seems like somehow the devil finds a way to divide friendships inside of churches from time to time. And when that happens, one of the most difficult things I've ever personally experienced is when I have friends who go, hey, man, we're leaving. I, I personally, I hate that. It doesn't, I, I don't do well with it. I don't, I'm not like, you know, hey, see you later. I, I always try to, you know, figure out why and what can we do and how do we solve the issue. And it's just personally, it's a difficult thing for me. I don't know if you've ever experienced the betrayal of a friend. Now, and let, me, let me say this. If you were to ask the people who leave why they left, they'd have their version of what I just said. There's always two sides to an issue. But whoever's going through it, it can be a point of darkness to have the betrayal of a friend. You agree with that right there. And here we have God going through that very issue. And here's what the Bible says. We have a high priest who is not unable to feel what we feel, but has experienced what we've experienced in darkness. And what we're supposed to do is to take it to him to obtain grace and mercy. It's, it's at that time when we're hurting the most that God wants us to come to him. What else did Jesus experience in this 24-hour time period? How about everybody that's close to him deserting him? That, that would be... How about his father turning his back on him? Do you think he felt loneliness? Do you think that he felt like, hey, this plan that we've worked so hard on is not... This isn't coming out the way that I wanted it to come out. I, I wrote down, in my mind, here are just some of the things that Jesus dealt with during this time. Betrayal, fear, death... Loneliness, hurt, pain, rejection, and doubt. Yes or no, every one of those things by themselves would be a dark hour for somebody. Have you ever been in a place where you felt like you've experienced any one of those things? I would say it is human condition that each one of these things at some point in our life comes to us. 
We feel betrayal. We feel fear. We, we have to deal with death, loneliness, hurt, pain, rejection, doubt, whatever. What does God want us to do with it? The Bible says that when we feel these things, we are to run to the throne room to obtain grace and mercy. To obtain grace and mercy. I just think it's really unique that the Father took the time that when the Bible is written, he reveals to the Holy Spirit to have men write, I want you to specifically put down this darkness because Jesus felt this so that no person in the room who's ever experienced those things would feel like, man, there's no answer for this or I'm all by myself. Jesus wants you to know he's been there, he's felt that, and you can come to him. I put down a curtain is torn. Another interesting thing that happens around the death of Jesus is that a curtain is torn. In Mark chapter 15, verse 37 and 38, the Bible says Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. This is picking up the story uh, in, in Mark's gospel. Then the wall, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now again, I mentioned last week, without a good Jewish background, we lose a lot of what's going on during this story. But the Jews had the temple. You remember that for Israel, the temple was the most significant place and event that a Jew had in their life. They would go to the temple and they would worship God and God's presence dwelt in a room inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. And no one except the high priest once a year was allowed to go into this little chamber where the Spirit of God dwelt on the earth. And what separated that little room from the rest of mankind was a very thick curtain or veil. The Bible tells us that when Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. The Bible says that this veil that separated the presence of God from the rest of humanity was torn top to bottom. Remember I said a few minutes ago, God is holy and his presence can't dwell with any sin. But Jesus, having paid the price for our sin at this point, that curtain is ripped so that God's presence is now forever with man. Man can approach God and God can dwell with man. And part of what Jesus accomplished in his death, not only did he go through issues and darkness so that we could relate to him and take it to him, part of what he did was to to, to fix the separation between us and God forever. And then I put down in your notes what I think to be another or third significant event during the death of Christ was that it's a finished work. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus records these words while on the cross. It is finished. Hey, say that with me real quick. It is finished. And with saying that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Here's my question quickly to you. What was finished? What is he, what is he referring to? What's done? What's finished? Well, Theologically speaking, the work that separated us from God, the the fall of man that happened all the way back in the garden, when Jesus said, it is finished, what he's referring to, all the work that is necessary for us to be right with God, it is done. Now, I I think what's important and what you need to get out of that, that statement is this right here. Nothing else ever needs to be done to the work of Jesus for us to be right with God. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you sing, how much money you give, how many times you go to church, how good or how bad. All of those things in their right realm are important issues in life. But listen to this. Nothing 
can be added to the work that Jesus has done in order to make God love you more or make God accept you or to make heaven a possibility. The finished work of Jesus once and for all has completed whatever was missing between us and God. When he said it is finished, everything is completely done, everything is completely finished, and nothing ever needs to be added to it. Now I put down this sentence right below it, and if you'll find it, here's where I want to camp at tonight. I put down the necessity of the grave. The necessity of the grave. And right behind that, I wrote this sentence to myself. God doesn't always have a plan B. What do I mean by that? I, 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 uh, I have these friends. And from time to time, they will say, I want to be in a perfect will of God. You ever heard that statement right there? I want to be in a perfect will of God. And so I, I asked them what time, what do you mean by that? The perfect will of God. And they said, well, what, what I want to do is walk right where God wants me to walk. I don't want to be outside of that. And I said, so does God have his perfect will and then a secondary will? And I got what they were trying to go for, but they kind of had like God's got plan A and plan B. And if you can't get in plan A, then plan B will work. And I thought to myself, I'm not quite sure that sounds good. And it sounds right. And I think it probably makes people feel pretty good about whatever they're doing in life. But that's not what the Bible ever teaches. And I don't think that God has a plan B. So let me, let me jump in on these three things with Jesus' death. Let me, let me talk about the necessity of the grave. Because I think this is really important. God doesn't always have a plan B. In fact... Sometimes God only has one way it's going to take place. And let me, let me give you an indication. When Jesus was in the garden, we talked about this last week. Jesus prays this prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. Remember? He says, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. I don't want to drink of having to die. I don't want to go through having to, to lay my life down. I don't want to experience darkness. But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is praying from his will, but then he speaks to the Father's will. I would say to you, yes or no, it's very possible to have two wills at any time in your life, yours and God's. And sometimes we go, well, God has plan B. Plan B is probably your will, not God's will. All right, let me, let me, let me take you a little further on this right here. This, maybe this gets good here. All right, so, so Jesus prays the prayer, not what I will, but what you will be. How, how about this? How about this, this thought right here? Um, in Mark 14, 33 through 36, let me read it. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he said to him, to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, Jesus prayed, everything is possible for you. Then take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. Let me, let me comment on this. There is a deception that I think a lot of people who love God are into by being half-verse people. Half-verse people. And what I mean by that simply is they'll take a verse from the Bible and they'll apply the first half while ignoring the second half. So... For instance, Jesus prays this prayer. Not what I will, but according to what? God, let this cup pass from... I don't want to go through this. This is too hard. It's too difficult. I, I, I don't want to lay my life down. Not what I will. 
let me just ask the question and think about it for just a second. Is it, is it at all possible that a lot of people take that verse of scripture and they only pray the first part? God, all things are possible for you, so take this cup away from me, and they stop right there at that prayer. I mean, how many, I, that sounds like a pretty good prayer, actually. At all difficult places in life, pray this prayer. All things are possible with you, so take this cup away from me. If you only quote the first half of the verse, you can build an entire theology based on one half of a scripture that says anything difficult in life, all you have to do is pray that God will take it away because anything is possible with God and you'll never have to go any, through anything difficult. And I wonder how many people are half-verse people where all they do is they take the part of the verse that works for them or the part of the verse that they want while ignoring the other. Let me, let me give you another one. Romans 8.28 All things work together for good. Comma. It's really important. Comma. To those who know and love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. If all you do is quote the first half of the verse, all things work together for good. You ever heard somebody say that? I can't tell you how many times somebody flippantly throws out half-verse theology, thinking that if I just throw out half the verse, my life will be okay. All things work together for good. Bull. Wrong. All things work together for good to them that know and love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Not everything in life works out for the good if you're not doing what God wants you to do. Not all things work out for good if you don't know who God is and what he's doing in your life. Not all things work out like you think they're supposed to when you don't understand what God's purpose is, but you just quote half of it. If it's difficult... You can do anything, so take this cup away from me. The other half of the verse, not what I will, but what you will to be done. Yes or no, that changes significantly the first part of that verse. All things are possible, so take this cup away from me. Not what I will, what you will to be done. Yes or no, that changes that verse entirely. The Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. To them that know and love the Lord and are called, it changes that verse absolutely entirely. I wonder how many people are stuck as half-verse believers and their lives are messed up because they're wondering, why doesn't it work the way that I'm praying or the way that the Bible says? How about this? Because you're only taking half the verse. I wrote down in the notes, Highlands Ranch, Castle Rock, look at it for yourselves. How miserable is a person who lives in the garden because they won't surrender to the will of God? Okay, Rich, here's what I mean by that. The most difficult point in Jesus' life was the Garden of Gethsemane. How do we know that? It was at that point that Christ, he, he from his own mouth says, I'm at the point of death. I am heavy with sorrow, 
and I can't do what's being asked of me. He is at the most difficult place of his life in the garden. If Christ doesn't surrender to the will of God, he is stuck in the garden of Gethsemane forever. I want you to follow me. How many believers find themselves going through a garden experience? And I don't mean a rose garden. And I don't mean a beautiful, got it all. I mean the garden. Gethsemane means oil press. Christ is being crushed at that point, the Bible says for us. How many people end up at a place in their life where it is crushing? But because they will not surrender to the will of God, they live their life in that. How miserable is a person stuck in the garden of Gethsemane rather than going through the resurrection? Do you get that? So let me, let me throw this. Maybe, maybe this helps round this out a little bit more. It is God's will that only His will is accomplished and prevails in your life. Let me say it again. If you are praying, God, I wish I knew your will. Right, let me help you. Part of His will is that His will is the only will in your life. If there are two wills, then you are a divided person. And you are probably stuck in a garden scenario asking God, take this away from me. And I bet God hasn't. The only way he has for he doesn't have a plan B. You've got to go through, not around. But you're praying, take me out. And God is saying, you've got to go through. So you've halted your ability to experience the resurrecting power of God because you won't surrender your will. Jesus prayed this prayer. All things are possible. So take this away from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will be done. What was God's will? The Bible says it pleased the Father to crush the Son. That sounds like, man, what kind of a father is he? I'll tell you. He is the Father who sacrificed his own Son so that you never have to feel that pain. He is the father who gave up the life of his own child because you and I could never pay the price. Only Christ could do it. And God loved you so much that he sent his only son. And it was God's will that Jesus have to go through the garden, through the grave, to the resurrection. And I want to point this out to you. Christ is the model for all believers in their life. And we all say yes to that as long as it's talking about the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. He is my model as long as I can walk on water. He is my model as long as he puts his foot on the neck of the devil. But if you have to go through the difficulty of a crushing experience, then there are two wills in it. And we generally settle on our will, not his will, and pray half prayers. You can do anything. Take me out of this because that's my will. And we don't say the words, not what I will but what you will be done. Mm. I think probably if you're like me, when I hear things like that, and this last week when I'm writing it, my mind becomes a filter of all the things in my life that apply to this scripture. And I suddenly start thinking like, God, are you saying this? Are you saying that? Anybody else in here begin to do that? If you're sitting here right now and a message sort of freaks you out, that's not the intention of it. God God is not saying to you, I've got disaster planned for you. 
I would say this is what God is saying for you. I've got resurrection planned for you. But there's only going to be one will in your life. And you've got to be willing to die to yours to embrace mine. How come you never hear amens when you say that? <laughs> Let's point out the Lord's Prayer. I taught on this last year. Spent a great deal of time in the idea that if you want to know God's will, go back to the simplicity of the Lord's Prayer. Say it with me. I bet you know it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Stop. I wonder how many of us have learned the rhythmic cadence of a prayer without ever contemplating the depth of what's being said. Our Father, who's in heaven, how much we adore and respect your nature and character. That's what name means. Your kingdom come, your will be done. If you ever pray this prayer, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life. God, I give my life to you. God, I want to do what you want me to do. If you ever pray that prayer, and then you find yourself going through something difficult. It is not the Father turning His back on you. It is the Father answering your prayer. And rather than run from it, embrace it. Because you cannot have resurrection till you go through a death. That's good. That is good. So everybody goes, but I've lived my entire life trying to avoid death. I've lived my entire life trying to isolate and insulate myself from any difficulty. Human nature. But it does not stop a good father from accomplishing his will in his child's life. Let me, let me, let me say this. I wrote this down. I thought, I thought maybe this helped to sum it up a little bit. Salvation, Gordon, salvation is free. You can't earn it. When Jesus said it is finished, here's what that means. It's finished. You can't do anything to add to his work. You can't buy it. You can't add to it. You can't pray more. You can't act. It is finished. Salvation is free. How about this, though? Discipleship will cost you everything you have. Salvation is absolutely free, but discipleship and lordship will cost you everything you have. Lordship means there's only room for one Lord in your life. Lordship means only one throne and only one king can sit there. Matthew 10.38, Jesus said, take up your cross, follow me. The one who's not willing to do that is not worthy of me. Here's the message that's preached in church today. Come to God and he'll give you stuff. You think I'm kidding. I'm summing it up, but that is the message that is loud and clear in church today. Serve God because he'll give you things and he'll do things for you. Here's the message that Jesus said. Come to God and give your life to him. Hmm. God wants us to understand that two wills have to become one. They cannot coexist in your life and you be happy. 
I put down part of the understanding of the work of Christ in your life and the whole thought of what Jesus accomplished for us. Jesus knew something that we tend to forget. John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus speaking said this, The hour has come. He's talking to his disciples. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The part in this verse where Jesus said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But it was for this very purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Here's what Jesus remembered that we forget. Part of God's glory for your life only takes place after the death of the old things in your life. God wants to glorify himself in you and God also wants to do awesome things with you but it can only take place on the other side of death. It can only take place on the other side of laying everything down for him. When we were gathered on Tuesday with my teaching team we're talking about these scriptures and what God was saying and what he would say to us. And that's where this little card came from. We wrote on it just those words in summation. Not my will, what I do, but your will, what God can do. I got thinking to myself, what if we actually took this serious? What if we heard this message? What if we asked God, What is it in my life that you're saying to me that I need to surrender to you over? What is it in my life that I need to get rid of two wills and come to a single will? What is it in my life that I need to allow you to take or I need to die to, that I need to have a resurrection over? And we just got thinking, what if we actually took time to write it? To act on this. To really say to God, if you want to do this, I'll cooperate with you. So I got thinking this afternoon when I was getting ready to come here. God, what would I put on that card personally? What would I write on there? You know, I came up just with three things in about a two-minute time span. The first one I mentioned to you. In the beginning of this message, one of the most difficult things I ever go through is feeling like when a friend leaves, the betrayal. And I started thinking in 14 years. It's an indictment against me as much as it's anything else. But here's one thing. One thing you will have to, if you go here, get used to. When I teach, I do rip my heart open and I do allow myself 
to be exposed to these things. Don't act like it doesn't affect me or that I don't have these issues. I wrote down on a card the name of a person that I'm bitter against. I'm absolutely bitter. I'm bitter that we were great friends. I'm bitter in the things that they said. I'm bitter that they left. I'm bitter in where things are right now. I've I've become bitter. And I thought to myself, okay, not my will, and I put the person's name in there, but your will, and I wrote down forgiveness. And then I started thinking of a bunch of different things that are going on that I choose my will over. Sometimes I'm an angry person. Sometimes I let my temper parent. I let my anger be a husband. I let my anger be a leader. I let my anger direct things that I say and that I do from time to time. What is that? That is my will, not his will. And unless I die to that thing, I am stuck in a miserable garden. Ever been there? Ever just live with a thing for years and years and years and years and years? And here's your prayer. God, take it away. And here's what God says to you. No, die to it. God, you can do anything. Remove these feelings. God, you can do anything. Get that person. God, you can do anything. Justify me. And here's what God says. No, die. Lay your will down. Forgive them. Inside of that, I felt like there's times I've justified myself in the situation with the person. Somebody will come to me and tell me what they've said. So instead of just going, well, you know, They might be right. Instead of just releasing it, I feel the need to have to justify my side of the story. Well, here's what you don't know. Here's what they did. What is that? That's my will. What does that do? It puts two things trying to control my life. What happens? I'm miserable. I'm not doing it God's way. Okay, I'm using my story, and maybe you're sitting there and you don't ever struggle with that, but what is it that God would say to you that belongs in not my will, but your will? I was in the shower. I'm thinking about this stupid card. There's something I want to go spend money on right now. The Lord told me no. And I am. (laughs) Anybody relate to that? He doesn't tell me no a lot. But there's something specifically he said no to, at least for now. And I found myself surfing the internet for hours (laughs) looking for that thing. And here's what I'm praying. Give it to me. (laughs) Yes or no? Anybody else relate to what I'm saying? So I had to take this and I wrote, 
not what I want. And I wrote down what the thing was. But what you want. And I don't think it's because he doesn't want me to have it. But I think it's a lordship issue right now. And who's going to win in the deal? And unless I'm willing to die to it, he's not the Lord of my life. Did you hear me? Money can be a lordship issue. I just started looking through it and I thought, my, how many things do I do what I want to do? And then I stand up and talk about lordship. I left time. Grab the card. Look at me. I want you to hear me say this. At the thorn. In the middle of it, they do an intermission. And the man that has written it and created it comes up and he does a presentation of the gospel and he says, if you're here and you don't know Christ and you'd like to know him, we're going to give you an opportunity to do this. But then he says, anybody else that's here that knows him, you need to do business with God tonight. Take this opportunity to do it. And I found myself reluctantly listening to that, thinking to myself, I don't need to do anything, and I wish they'd get back onto the play here, and why are they taking the time to do all this right here? And I'm going to tell you the truth. Sometimes, sometimes it's just cooperating with God so that your heart stays in a place where he can move it. It's not, it's not about your comfort level. And it's not about what you prefer. It is supposed to be about whatever he tells you to do, we're supposed to be willing, ready, and able to do it. Does anybody hear a squeak going on? I hear a squeak keep happening constantly. What is it? A smoke alarm? Is that what it is? The battery's going out of it? That drives me nuts. I want you to do this for me. You may be sitting there going, that's for somebody who doesn't know God. Or that's for somebody who's new in their relationship with Him. And I want you to let me pastor you right now for a minute. Let me have spiritual authority in your life and tell you something. Do this because you want to keep your heart in a place where it's soft and it's tender and it's sensitive and God can get you to do anything he needs you to do even if you think it's stupid. That's why I want you to do this. Now, I don't think writing on it is any more powerful than just praying a prayer. Don't misunderstand me. But there's something to cooperating and identifying and owning something that puts us as a personal part of it. I want you to take a moment right now and whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you, I want you to write it down on the card. Whatever right now the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you that you go, my will is taking over or my will has taken over and I'm doing my own thing. I'm walking my own way. And then on the other side, I want you to write down what it is that you believe God wants you to do about that. If you've got unforgiveness, 
do you believe that God wants you to forgive? If you're an angry person, do you think that God wants you to be gentle? If you're out of control, do you think he wants you to have self-control? If you need to personalize it towards a person that you're dealing with, I had to. A situation, whatever it is. But I want you to write it down. And then here's what I want you to do with it. In our sanctuary, there's a cross there. There's a cross there. At Highlands Ranch, you'll find one. At Castle Rock, you'll find one. I want you, when we close this message, to take it to the cross. Here's the significance of participation. The Bible says the handwriting of offense that was against us, and that is our sin and our will. The handwriting of offense that was against us has been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross of Christ. I want you, I don't think that there's any more power in writing it down and going to a cross as opposed to just praying about it in your chair, but I think it allows you to participate and own something if you'll do what I'm telling you to do right now. I want you to take it to the cross and nail it there. On the cross, you will find little push pins, nail it there. Leave it there and allow it to be the significance of God. I want one will in my life and it needs to be yours. And see yourself as participating in this thing right now. All right, I'll also do this. If the crosses get really crowded and you know that they're going to, lay it on the altar. You're going to have to walk this way, most of you, to get to communion anyway. The altar is a place of sacrifice. It was a place of laying down to God what belonged to him and bring it to the altar and put it there. That's a significant and acceptable alternative too. But allow this to be the reality of what we do right now to engage with God And allow this to be something where if you really want his will in your life, write it down and act on it tonight. Father, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray that you take these and that you accomplish what you want to accomplish right now. God, there can only be one will in our life and it needs to be your will. We're going to pray what Jesus prayed. All things are possible with you. Take this difficult thing away from me. Not what I will though, God what you will to be done in my life and I give it to you I give it to you I want you to just take a moment write it down if you need a pin on your way to communion at the front of our altars you'll find them there at the crosses you can find them there but I want you to go ahead and allow this to be the significance of God not my will but what you will to be done Nate why don't we do this all our worship pastors at all campuses, let's take the first song right now. Let's just worship God over it. Allow people to write it down, to think about what the Holy Spirit is saying. Second song, once you direct it, all of our worship pastors direct the activity of our folks and direct them to communion and to the opportunity to place these where I said. Folks, let's go ahead and do that right now and let this first song be the opportunity to do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do.